Hello and welcome back to Voicecraft and for a conversation on the Radical Edge. This episode is hosted by Tom Lyons and features members of the Voicecraft network for a session to reflect and build on recent themes and threads explored at Voicecraft. Joining Tom is the philosopher and writer Daniel Garner of OG Rose, Elder Les Spencer, thinker and arborist Zach Fishman and clinical psychologist Aspasia KG. This dialogue leans into the freeform modality, and as the energy between participants unfolds, it moves from reflection and into exploration of questions. Why do people experience blocks in the process of connecting to themselves and others? How do we cultivate contexts and skills that support healthier modes of relating to difference? And what does it mean to relate with, through and beyond tragedy? And a good deal more too. You can learn about the speakers in the show notes. This podcast features real peaks of intensity in relation to profound material, and in that sense does ask something of you, the listener. Here we go. The idea of this session is basically for us to reflect on any of the Voicecraft content that's been released over the last kind of three to six months. And we can go further back than that, but just like, anything that's still alive for you, anything you've found of value, any contention, Mm -hmm. just an open space for like active reflection, but probably more of a focus on the content than on the voice craft context, but we'll invite that in as well. Cool. Thank you, Tom. Nice. Well, I'm doing good. Um, yeah, I'm, I'm excited for this conversation. I've been thinking a lot of recently watched the, uh, jamie wheel podcast that tim did which i really enjoyed i really like that a lot and i've been thinking about it excited to reflect on that and i've been thinking too a lot about the uh matthias de stefano podcast that we did and uh you know i went through i went through the other day and read the comments on that which is always a dangerous thing you know i mean and there's there's a lot of you know there's there's a lot of negativity that that I certainly brought into the conversation and, you know, just to speak for myself and then, and yeah, you know, I'm speaking for myself here, but there was a lot of negativity in that conversation, um, which, you know, to me, that's not negativity is not a dirty word. Um, no. And like, while I, while I stand by everything I said, I, I have been reflecting on it and like the, the, what would you say? The effects of that. And, I want to be, I want to be responsible to this group um, and to see like, cause you know, I don't, I don't think that Tim, maybe, I don't know. I was going to say all this once we started, but um, I don't think that Tim's intention with that session was necessarily to be like, let's all get together and shit on <laughs> Matthias and, and Aubrey. And that's kind of where I took it. Um, and, and so I just, you know, I just want to be responsible to, to the group and see like how that landed with you guys if if that's something you want to talk about if not you know I'm, i don't yeah. need to make the whole session about about me but um i do want to be i do want to be open to to being responsible to the negativity that i brought into the conversation so that's my that's my like initial kind of like feelings coming in cool yeah i, I won't say anything to that now because that would be a good thing to unpack in real time and we'll definitely invite those more personal threads as well. I think those are often the most interesting. So yeah, Les, have you seen any of the Voicecraft podcasts or YouTube videos over the last few months? Uh, yes, I have. Uh, cool. And been uh, fascinated because uh, 
I'm at the moment uh, having a, a Zoom uh, once a week with a, a chappie from Nairobi. And um, he articulates a particular theme that has been popping up all the time in the last few voicecraft. I forget the exact term of it, but you might be able to identify this. This is the meta process in connecting and relating mm -hmm. uh, with people that are preoccupied with protecting. So how do you move from protecting to connecting and relating where people have got functional value in negativity to get back to you, uh, Zach? Because I, I have been linking... Uh, my, the last third of my PhD in 2000 and, and finished in 2004, late in life, uh, was linking into uh, people uh, up in the war zone in, in the Philippines. Uh, I'll, I'll make this brief now. Lukai in Kenya has just articulated the, the meta process that I've used in relating with him so that he is in turn networking. So how do you do intercultural transferring of things that work that you've heard and, and adapt them across to Nairobi? How, how do you do that so that he can make sense and adapt even as I'm talking without missing what I'm talking? And, and Voicecraft has been talking about the metal process that I use that I'm not particularly aware of. Anyway. That's a little bit about me. Wow. Yeah. Okay. I'll definitely hit record now because that was amazing. And maybe we'll include that in as well, if you're okay with that, because that feels like a great jumping off point. Yeah. So just to bring back like the context of this conversation, Tim's asked us if we can spend some time reflecting on the recent content on the Voicecraft podcast. And so I thought, I've had a lot of thoughts around this and just earlier today, I kind of sat down. Oh, here's a man. Um, I've, I've sat down and I was just sort of seeing what threads came back through just from memory. Cause I often find those are the most relevant things, the things that kind of stick around around. Hey, Daniel. Welcome. I'm just introducing our context. So you're right on time. Wonderful. I'm sorry to be late. It's Valentine's Day here in the States, and we had a little uh, family dinner and different day. Unless, Mr. Spencer, it's a delight to meet you, sir. My goodness, I enjoyed your your talk with Tim Adlin. It's the delight. So good to be here, everyone. Thank you, Daniel. Good to have you, Daniel. Yeah, so I sort of, I'll share a few reflections around that at more of a high level, and then I'm basically just going to open it up, and we can either run with some of that or just literally bring in whatever's been alive for us around these sort of last six months with Voicecraft content. But I thought before I do that, I sort of noticed coming in here and over the last day, been getting like a really strong feeling of togetherness from this space and the broader space, speaking about the liminal web, speaking about integral metamodernism, and even like adjacent and broader than that, there is like this real sense of like a lot of time and energy coming purely out of the void, like because of pure value, there's very little incentive uh, externally. And so there's just like a, there's like a real critical 
massive passion forming. And I feel like just to start this by presencing that value and just the gratitude that I know we all share for that, even if it is often implicit and unconscious, it's like, wow, this is a big wave and we're all riding it. And it's pretty damn beautiful and radical. And that's sort of, we're just one little outcrop here today on that big wave. And maybe just momentarily presencing Tim's conversation with Jamie, I really appreciate the groundedness of that, the severity of that. But at the same time, I find it hard to be fully swept up in the sort of doom status of the world while in the flow of these conversations and these relationships. And this, I think what you said, Les, around like moving from protecting to relating and that kind of meta process feels like these conversations are the flow that embodies that meta process and opens us up. So I feel like there's these massive questions that these spaces are grappling with around like what are the stories that we're going to live by over the coming decades? And then what are the practices that will enact and embody the principles contained in those stories? And then what kinds of structures are going to emerge on different scales, local, national, global? And that feels like in a way, these all of the conversations that Voicecraft have been having, same with you, Daniel, same with you, I'm sure, Les and Zach and Aspasia, we're always talking about this stuff. So sort of like, yeah, reimagining aspects of civilization and metaphysics and all of that. And then with that, when you're exploring those questions comes the question of value, because like practices, stories, it's all about value ultimately. And with value necessarily comes power. So that you, if you're going to grapple with value, you have to grapple with power. And it seems like we're transitioning somewhat out of a system that has used money as the language of value, as Matt Siegel put it recently, into more of attention as the language of value. And that's sort of like people like Bard pointing at that. Um, and so there's these questions and then there's these like very core metaphysical essences and domains. And it seems like one thing we've been exploring is the kinds of archetypal roles that come out in these times of change when these things are in question, both the generative and benevolent forms of these roles, but also the ways they pathologize. And this is sort of why we're questioning people like uh, Matthias and Aubrey as they're stepping into these archetypal roles of the sage and the, the guru and the Messiah, all these different forms. And then there's also these like bigger collective intelligences like metamodernism and integral that seem to be trying to go more meta and to act as this translating capacity on top of the process that's more unconsciously relating to stories and practices and structures to try to mediate that more with more consciousness, I think, is one way of talking about that. So where that all leads me first is just to the question around communication itself, because that feels like one of the like really central parts of that process and how language factors into that and how difference factors into that. 
and communication not just explicitly with symbols but also implicitly with the energetics of our tone and our bodies and all of that so yeah that that's sort of drawing some of it together for me and i'll just leave it open now we can sit for a bit and as soon as someone feels called to launch in either on that topic or in a completely different direction we'll go for it so yeah thank you all for being here Uh, well, I'll start here. Um, <clears throat> in terms of of communication and difference, like I've been thinking a lot about the difference difference between uh, globalism and pluralism, right? Whereas it seems to me that the the fundamental insight behind globalism is that boundaries uh, create conflict, kind of inevitably, right? If you're going to have boundaries, if you're going to have membranes uh, with real differences between those, those differences, when coming, when they come into contact with each other, will create conflict, inevitably. Um, and I think the globalist move is to say, therefore, we should dissolve all of the boundaries and forget our differences and all just become one big organism swimming in one big globalist womb that would manifest if only we could put aside our differences and just focus on the places where we are united, right? Um, whereas I think that the pluralist point of view is to say, yes, boundaries create conflict, but they are also necessary for collective action. We can't act like... The, I, I think the, the pluralists will just point to the impossibility of the globalist dream um, and say that rather than trying to avoid conflict through dissolving boundaries, rather we should try to elevate conflict into a battle which does not ultimately lead to physical violence, right? That rather than fighting the conflict out through guns and tanks and atomic arms, that we fight it out through words and through art and through uh, community and gardening and so many other things, right? That there are arenas in which we can play out the conflict uh, in an elevated fashion so that it doesn't devolve into physical violence. Um, and I find myself squarely on one side of that argument. Like I reject the globalist position kind of just entirely um but i guess i guess the globalist position becomes redeemed in that like in order to make pluralism work there does have to be a global context in which all of those different membranes can hash out their conflict right but i think the difference is that the pluralist conflict or the the pluralist context must be one which deeply embraces conflict right so i think a pluralist society will be a very like antagonistic place um, and must be, or else the the difference, then the conflict created by the difference just gets repressed into the subconscious and then explodes in, in unforeseen ways. Um, and so how does that all relate to what we've been going through here? Well, maybe I'll just leave it there. Maybe I'll just leave it there for now and just uh, just as some opening remarks and uh, and pass it on. So yeah, <laughs> happy to be here. Uh, up in the, the top end of Australia, 
Oh, by the way, uh, as Paisia, whereabouts in the world are you? I'm in Sydney. Oh, good. I, I yeah. love it. And, and Daniel, whereabouts in the world do you hang out? I hang out on a farm in central Virginia, so in the United States of America on the East Coast. Wow. Okay, good. Thank you. Uh, and up in the top end of Australia, uh, for hundreds of years, there was the uh, Australian uh, Aboriginal Indigenous group called uh, the... Um, ah, name escapes me. I keep on thinking of Indigenous group up in northern Japan, but that's... Uh, not quite happens when you get a few years on your belt. Uh, the Olnu. Now, the Olnu uh, had growing uh, in the seas uh, a sea slug called Besh, Besh de Mer, and the, the, the East Timorese sea gypsies and the seagoing uh, traders from the Malaccas loved the beach de Mer. Now, the Olnu when they would see these people that were very, very different to them coming across the, the horizon, they didn't have within them the notion of the necessity distortion. They did not have, here comes fucking conflict. What they sensed was here comes difference. And I am tuning into my chest and I am beginning to be a different Yolnu. And they say, can you feel it? Can you feel it? We are becoming different because difference is coming towards us. And they've all got this chanting as they row and they're superb in going across the oceans. So the arrival of difference was a time to recognise difference in myself and recognising that the notion of conflict was not part of their reality at all. And there was a time for sharing and for the celebration of your difference making me different for a time and how can I learn from this and what is the positive advantages of difference. So this puts a, a completely different spin on the potentialities and their reality altered by the arrival of difference with no hint of the inevitability of conflict. And yet the Yolnu knew the concept of Ganma and Galtha. Now, uh, I'm not sure which is which, but one is the notion of the ebb and flow of the tide because they lived in estuaries and they drew upon that as a metaphor from nature to affect there was a time for me to, to oh, tell what, what it is and then, and then I can withdraw. Ebb and flow. And that was the way in which they engaged with these people with uh, Gamma. Now, the Galtha is that they could weave together. They been influenced by the weaving of the Malacca people who were beautiful in weaving things, and that would bring down things to trade. Now, the only people could make white thread, red thread, a lot of different shades of brown, a very bright red, and a black thread. 
and this is this is um, uh, East Timorese uh, that I've got round my neck, uh, and the different threads didn't all become brown. The Browns were not interested in converting people to their way. What they were together is weave together difference to make extraordinary patterns. The patterns in the middle. I didn't know why I was putting this on, but that was Ganma and Galtha. So they would they would celebrate difference, and the word cleaver was not used in conflict. But it's one of these words like um, ravel. Ravel means unravel. And to ravel something means to pull it apart and put it together. The meat cleaver is one of those words. You can pick up a meat cleaver and you can say with gestures, pricking holy water with the meat cleaver, you can cleaver one to one, unto one another. I look a bit like a Greek uh, uh, orthodox. I cleaver unto one another for the rest of your life. So that which can put asunder can bring together. I love that. Are you are you still going, Liz? Can I jump in for a minute? Yeah, yeah I, I think I'm the silence. I'll just yes. check it out. I think I've got nothing more to say. You sure? I'm happy to wait. I don't have much to say either. Um, I, I did just want to remark that um, I really loved the way you illustrated that that point because that very concrete example evokes so much that I think is difficult to capture in language clearly. And some of that comes down to even the word conflict. You know, when people talk about conflict, um, I bristle a little inside because I'm... I think it's not clear to me exactly what they're talking about, and I I think I have a bit more of an expanded definition. Um, so conflict for me is really just sort of, yeah, difference coming together. It doesn't necessarily mean. I think for a lot of people, conflict is sort of the same as saying war, or you know, like having having a battle over over difference. Um, whereas for me, I think conflict has a lot more potential inside it. Um, and the way I was thinking about it before you spoke, Liz, but then you illustrated it so much more um, richly than I, than I could have, uh, was was when when the the way you were talking about it, Zach. I agree. Um, it's there's a there's a willingness, though. I think in that pluralistic sense, there's there's a willingness to to let difference or conflict wash over us and to change us in some manner or to become part of us or to um, to change some configuration at least, like to, to particularly highlight one aspect of something we believe. To there, there, there needs to be, I guess, a shift in perspective about how we see um, how we see certainty, I guess, and then the role of of difference and, and different perspectives and different opinions and um a willingness to allow that to continue to move us and shape us in some manner. Um, now, it's also important, obviously, to know where you, you might draw the line with that. Um, but that's where my mind was going. Um, openness and willingness and um, 
I guess, almost seeing seeing difference as an inevitability. Uh, and how are we? How are you going to encounter it when it arrives? Um, and 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 I think that frame is just altogether different to someone who feels very certain and who they are and what they stand for and, and this, the, sort of that rigidity and that that's the best way and they're not interested in encountering anything different, which to me seems like a nonsense because you will fundamentally become different just necessarily over time anyway. Um, but that's where my mind was going. And then, Les, you, yeah, you blew my mind open with that beautiful, beautiful example. Um, so I'm still thinking on that as well. Um, I do have some reflections on particulars of the of the voicecraft content in recent times, but I don't know if now's the time to sort of inject a little list of things that I liked. Um, I might just leave the space open to see if that goes anywhere first, but feel free to direct to me, Tom, if, if you want to hear that at some point. Definitely come back to that as soon as it opens up. So thanks. Just briefly on that, something that sparked for me, Aspasia, and I agree agree that that just concrete example that you gave, Liz, is just so rich, kind of just immediately illustrates what's needed. And I, I was thinking, I wonder if one of the things that makes difference more difficult now is that back then, the way of life that someone was participating in had been forged by nature. And so there was a deep coherence embedded in the life process, whereas now there's more degrees of freedom. And so the kinds of stories, practices, ways of being that we can find ourselves inside of are probably actually less coherent and less integrated than they've ever been. And therefore it's more natural to be repulsed by certain elements of it some elements might be alien, some elements might be lost, disconnected, self-absorbed. And all of this does feel like growing pains, but it's sort of like the amount of difference we're now being asked to tolerate is on a new scale. I think, uh, Tom, you, you've uh, honed in on a very, very significant part of that. Those Yolnu were were uh, in, uh, literally embedded deeply within nature, uh, and, and now we're we're living in in a world that is unnatural uh, in so many ways, uh, to the point where um, to introduce one thing, uh, there are certain uh, people that would have an immediate repulsion if they saw me sitting at a bus because they immediately would say, dirty old man. Uh, I, I was um, just a, uh, to give a, a context here, I was uh, picked up by the police uh, a couple of weeks ago for aiding and abetting uh, because I was getting into a car with... Uh, uh, known uh, drug dealers that I, I didn't know because they were just my lipped into town up in the top end of Australia. So uh, I, I'd, I'd gone up there because I'd just come back from an international conference in Norway uh, talking about 
introducing the notion of spirituality and whatever that might mean into the role of nursing. And I'd, I'd come back from freezing cold to freezing cold Melbourne, uh, so I decided to shoot up you have a couple of days up in the top end where it was going to be uh, hot. And I'm suddenly in the back of a police car with, uh, but I still had my hair sitting straight up in there. And um, and they said, uh, are you are you comfortable there? And I was wiggling a bit, trying to get comfortable because uh, the uh, handcuffs were very, very tight. I said, no, I'm, I'm rather uh, concerned. Uh, because I, I don't want to get a fine for not wearing a seatbelt. And that, that made them laugh like crazy. Uh, I said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, and, uh, but the other thing is this is a very novel situation because I've never done meditation with my hands behind my back before. Uh, and that made them laugh. And then I said there was a good reason why they was a plain clothes because they were plain clothes drug squad. Uh, you've been well chosen to sit in the back with me. He said, why is that? I said, you've got one of the kindest voices that I've ever met in my life. And that got a, a, a further laugh. And like this is me progressively imposing meaning on the reality. And then I said, I hope this happens fairly quickly because I've got a plane flight back to Melbourne. I'm only up here for two days because I'm just back from international speaking as an invited uh, a clinical psychologist uh, at an international conference on spirituality. And I said, who the fucking hell are you? <laughs> so I said, well, I'm, apparently I'm, I'm not what you, you appear. Uh, and the, the guy that you were bashing up there before, what were you bashing him up for? We, we assumed he was extremely violent. I said, well, he's one of the nicest guys I've ever met in my life. So I hope that. Anyway, there's there's a little bit about, uh, I don't know where I even started or where I finished there, but that there is the possibility uh, even in this world where they live in the world, you become the thump and they immediately assume that they know who you are yet another slimy drug dealer. Uh, I was progressively uh, uh, establishing rapport and the guy that took my details and he said, I, when were you born in the watch house? I said, uh, 1940. Uh, and he's got a big uh, big Mac, double cheeseburger. And he said, oh, I'm not going to make old bones like you. I said, well, you've got to stop eating what you're eating or you'll be dead in a couple of years. And every one of his colleagues was laughing like crazy. And the guy that they bashed up uh, who was driving me was right behind me while I'm having up the whole police station in stitches. So that was um, me working with establishing uh, rapport and redefining meaning in a very, very shut down uh, world that we currently live in. Playing, literally playing, introducing play back into this monster of a life. <laughs> yeah, I love that. Um, I think you said you were progressively enforcing or progressively introducing rapport, but I heard it as aggressively introducing rapport, and I thought that was good too. 
I think <laughs> I think it's oh. oh yes 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 uh, maybe you did uh, say uh, aggressive aggressive, aggressive and then and then completely reprime and become nice yeah. uh, no, I, love that. Uh, I, I learned that from one of the masters in mm -hmm. in very respectful very very tight love mm -hmm. he was he was uh you could almost use the word ruthless in interrupting um dysfunction no, I can I can very much relate to that. I worked in forensic psychology for a little bit, um, and uh, yeah, I think I think this uh, this issue of difference um, is highly related to that environment. I've, yeah. I've got forensic like uh, psychiatry, psychiatry, forensic, community psychiatry, and under my belt, that was my PhD in, uh, but also. Uh, um, mm clinical psychology and in deep immersion in Indigenous healing ways. So I'm, I'm across quite a lot of them. Oh, I'd love uh, to talk to you one day, Les. I won't do it now, but um, it sounds like we have a lot in common. Yeah. Yeah. I just, very exciting. I've just come back from uh, uh, talking to the uh, uh, Hoyle, uh, who is the uh, governor of the most uh, palatial uh, prison in Norway, and back in 2018, I sat in on a, a 24 uh, people serving uh, 15 years or more in, in jail. Uh, 18 of them were serving life, so they were very interesting, serious dudes. And uh, my opening comment uh, to them, there wasn't a dry eye in the group. So, and then a little bit later, the, the jail heavy slapped me in the ribs Said, shut up, you've talked enough. My turn. Who wants this guy to come and work here? And 24 hands went up. And I said, oh, thanks for telling me. <laughs> I like your style. I know, I know where I am with you. Aggressive I, rapport, again, aggressive rapport. <laughs> yeah, well, uh, ju just the notion on that. Uh, I found out who the jail heavy was. And sat on that the seat on his left hand side. That turned him into my potential right hand man in the group. And I was sitting like Merlin sat on the left hand side of King Arthur in the in the story. I was sitting on his heart side, and he was sitting on my liver side as my external source of energy. So anyway, that's a bit of subtlety in working with the moment. Yeah, I'm really appreciating the the layers in that. Like one, this necessity to be able to see through appearances, especially in the world that we're in now, where appearances are louder than ever, more sort of in your face than ever. And then also, I hear in those stories, Les, you demonstrating the skill of communicating from underneath the appearances in a way that speaks to the part of people that already understands those layers of meaning and where the real sort of trust, love and meaning is found and consolidated. Well, that's real. That's really insightful. Yeah. Because these, these people often don't know they know at deeper levels. Yeah, right. And yet, their unconscious head nods to me, their unconscious communication. 
say to me, yeah, I know what you're on about, mate, but I haven't told the buggy yet. He's a slow fucking learner. Because these guys will use the vernacular. Sorry about calling me. No, no, it adds a good flavor. <laughs> I, I'm actually in that maybe we can dip into the Matthias episode because I feel like what you just spoke to is in a way what he's doing to some degree. And I don't know how consciously he's doing that and how much he sort of takes his language at face value versus seeing it as a kind of translation of meaning and symbolism. But like that ability to speak to the deeper and more unconscious parts of people feels like something he's very good at. And then the question becomes like, what, what's the intention driving that? And where is that coming from? And how consciously is someone like him doing it? So, yeah, but also I'm sure there's other things in that episode that we can revisit. Some things you mentioned, Zach, and I'd love to hear from you as well, Daniel, when you're ready to come in as well. Well, it is a delight to be here with you wonderful people. And Les Spencer, it's a, it's a thrill. I, I recall in your episode with Mr. Mr. Adlin, where you talked about the episode with the individual stabbing the corner of the room. And then you said, you know, basically stab the wife, stab the lover. And he's like, oh, my gosh, you know, and make them see what they're actually doing. And it was interesting because like when you were talking right there, there's kind of this sense of there's an energy that is misdirected that needs to be released. There's some sort of energy that is manifesting in this way of stabbing the corner of the room because it's not actually seeing what it is that you're thinking about doing. And when you see it, you're like, oh, my gosh, I need to control this energy. Right. And there's a way in which, to me, a lot of what you see online in the liminal web is there's this energy that's being directed, but it doesn't know yet how to be released. I almost want to say um, if I'm using that, because a lot of what you were just saying there, um, as we see in Mr. Spencer, it, it, there's a sense in which there are these kind of I called them meta skills. I'm now thinking energy skills, maybe framing skills. There are certain skills that you're talking about where you're able to direct the energy, to direct people out of a certain framing of the situation where they see it anew using laughter. There's a certain skill set here. Maybe I'll call them energy skills for now. Um, to Mr. Mr. Highroot's point and to Tom's point as well, when you have shared givens, rather they be nature, rather they be Christianity, rather they be the same geography in history. And for most of history, people have generally had the same givens. Well, the amount of energy skills you needed when you had shared givens was a lot less, even when you encountered difference, because the difference was contained in the radicalness of the givens. Yes, you as a Christian may encounter a Methodist, but you're a Baptist and there's difference. But because there's more commonality and we go to the same stores and we have the same general metaphysics, I may not have any energy skills at all, but there's enough commonality here where the likelihood of the difference turning into conflict is a lot less just because of the shared intelligibility. As you move toward globalization, then the more and more people are interacting with one another who don't have shared givens. So the need for energy skills skyrockets. And we don't teach them. Uh, and we have no idea what they are. Um, and to Mr. Mr. Fishman's point, you know, the idea of globalization 
being what we needed, you could associate with Francis Fukuyama's end of history, right? Where you'll have the market, we've overcome communism, market logic, the logic of exchange, as Marx talks about, will be the kind of the shared language, the shared givens, according to which we'll overcome the problems of pluralism. Well, that kind of worked. But you see, the problem is it works by doing what? What does it do? do? It takes difference and tries to, as you were saying, Zach, flatten it, right? Well, what is this? Repression, taking the energy, shrinking it into the equal sign, the dollar sign, right? Which now we have to be careful to demonize that because, you know, the ability of me to talk with difference in terms of commerce creates a common language. But the problem becomes if that's the only language by which I'm able to interact with difference. Now we have a compression. And what happens when we have the compression? We have an energy now that's not able to fully be its full self in difference. And it doesn't have the energy skills by which to be released. And it manifests in all this stuff going on. And I think there's a sense on the liminal web that there's some sort of energy, if you will, to kind of keep with that language, that's not able to be released. But of course, it's still in its repression going to manifest. And so it manifests where difference is conflict. So in order, because what Les was saying that was so beautiful on the idea of when does difference become an invitation for beauty? When people have the ability to handle difference, right? Well, for most of history, givens made that easier. We now don't have givens. Um, we have less givens. Or, inter or even if you're religious, you have a question mark to your religion, right? Because first principles, death of God, et cetera, so forth, right? So in order for difference then to not be an experience of anxiety that leads to conflict, you would need the energy skills by which to know how to work the energy or to work with the framing or to work with the difference. But those are skills we don't teach. Those are not skills we know that we have. And I think what you see, what I would say on the liminal web, there's this understanding that we need a new story, right? You know, a new kind of metaphysics, meaning crisis and different things. I don't disagree at all, but I will say this, and I've, speaking, I've spoken with Zach about it. What, what Les was describing is very interesting, but there, because it is a kind of skill, it's a kind of meta skill, it's a kind of non-facticity material skill, but notice that it is much more specific than a broad worldview. This is the middle space I think we're missing in a way in the conversation that people understand. There's like, okay, hard, hard pragmatism isn't enough, like, but we also need skills. We do need metaphysics. But then a really broad metaphysics about maybe Whitehead is valuable. Obviously, I'm in that business. I have nothing against it. But even if we have that, that's not necessarily the same as having the energy skill. Or I've talked with Zach about metamodern action. Action and pragmatism can be different. And I think there's a sensing out that something is missing. And people are like, we need to figure what that is. So you have some people over there saying, well, we need to start talking about economics and politics. And the people are like, no, that's going to be the reductionist to the logic of market. We don't want to do that. Well, we need to talk about value. But what if value becomes money? So there's something where the energy is looking for. And in my opinion, it has a lot to do. What it's looking for is the skills that could release it. But those are these kind of energy skills that exist in this new kind of toolbox of thinking. Without that toolbox, which I do think in this particular historic moment are kind of new in a way, because we're almost talking about the possibility of global pluralism. Well, that's kind of a contradiction based on the original terms, right? Well, the only way that a contradiction can be a sustainable paradox that actually is creative in the way that Les was talking, Mr. Spencer, is through a certain skill. Because the scarf you're wearing, which is so beautiful, requires weaving a skill, 
a patience, a time. So what is the skill, the meta skill, the energy skills of which are required now to weave difference into a relation that is not compressing, but actually directing the energy in what Hegel would call a sublative way or a creative way, where it's taking the old, taking the difference, but raising it and elevating it into a kind of harmony. And the closing, the closing way I would describe that to start here is um, it's the category, and we've talked about it before, of the difference between singularity and harmony. Like for me, a singularity is where you make it all brown, like you were saying, Mr. it's all the same color. Well, that's the globalist vision. That's been really bad. But then there's the a lot of different threads, but they don't relate. I've got the red threads over here. I've got the yellow. They don't relate, right? So that's not going to make the beauty. Weaving them together is a harmony, which I associate with a symphony orchestra. Lots of difference, piano, violin, uh, different brass. They're all different. They all play different notes, but they're coordinated to make possible a symphony orchestra. It's a coordinated weaving to make to make possible to makes possible the the scarf. So for me to close, that would suggest some sort of energy skills that are between hard pragmatism and giant worldview that we have to figure out what they are and then have the skill and the discernment to implement them from situation to situation when we're picked up on a cold night by the police, rather in an airport to be able to implement them because we can identify the situation and figure out the proper way to weave it. So I think a lot of the energy in these spaces are searching for that kind of thing and, and what it may perhaps look like. Thank you, Daniel. That that made just so, so much sense as, uh, yeah, to me. At so many levels again. Yeah. Neville, who was my mentor, uh, when he found me in 1985, I was the person that was mad enough and bad enough that he'd been looking for since 1969 when he realised that all the work that he'd done uh, in recording and researching uh, nine years of work where he his challenge during those nine years was to take the most protected people that are engaged in their own protection and putting them together so that they could connect and relate. So he had he'd gone to the back wards of psychiatric hospitals into the Long Bay Jail, the most dangerous jail at the time in, in Australia, where they wouldn't give him a day of parole. And he said, I want 40 out of there, half male or half female, and 40 out of there, half male, half female, mm. and I want half of them under-aroused, I want half of them over-aroused, half of them under-active, and half of them overactive. And I said, why in heaven's name would you do that, Neville? He said, think of it. These are the people that have had society knocked out of them. They're, they're almost tabula rasa. These, these are the very, very best people to start working with. So I created a context that as soon as they arrive, this place is so much better than where they were. They don't want to leave, but the condition of being here is that you're nice to one another. And so we created a situation that those people that 
from the lunatic asylum, they got them from the back wards. Those that they just had on drugs and were doing nothing with, they'd given up on. After it had been going for about, about seven months, eight months, people were arriving with only family and friends of five or less that were more dysfunctional than they were. They were leaving with a family, friend, close networking network of between 50 and 70 people. <clears throat> and they were leaving within three months. During those nine years that that operated, that became an intensive, the most significant psychiatric research unit that's ever been in the world, according to my reckoning. And he replicated that when he met me, because he thought, this is the guy that has the capacity to go back 30 years in a PhD, 25 years, and work out what was the process that was actually being used. And everyone that I interviewed that was still part of that, none of them had a clue how it worked. They knew what they did, but none of them knew how. So that was my challenge. And Neville, being his thoroughness, set up 70 different things over 40 years that he engaged me in. So by the time I started my PhD, I'd, I didn't realise it, but I'd already finished all my fieldwork. Now, I sense he also created for me over an, uh, an intensive 18-month period 24 people joining with 24 people where we came together for three days a week on learning the micro skills of how to do this very engaging that you've been talking about, Daniel. Those micro skills of being able to communicate with individual small groups and groups of up to 180. What are the micro skills of being able to recognise such that the group as group unconsciously tells you what they need. So I can go there with total emptiness in that with those 24 prisoners. And they they told me unconsciously what to do. The guy sitting opposite me, he had no eye contact but was watching me like a hawk. And I was communicating every time he communicated to me unconsciously. And as soon as it finished, he came and talked to me and that was the first time he had spoken in eight years. So that was some of the induction that I'd had, and I happened to be sitting on all of those micro schools, sitting alone in a dungeon down, downstairs. So it's about time it became known to the world. But yeah, there's absolute value there, absolute value, gems. Because I said, I said to Neville, was there gems in Fraser House? Was there miracles? Was there spiritual extraordinary? He said, uh huh. He laughed like crazy. He said, there was miracles day and night. To get through one night without chaos was an absolute miracle. Keeping in mind the guy that was jabbing the wall, that was him using his exquisite skills, limited as they were, to protect himself 
See, all of these people, both bad and bad, and all those people in jail, their primary preoccupation is personal protection. So they're living in a very dangerous world. How do you get beyond their protection, which has functional value? So don't take their protection away from them. Those things had functional value. See, that guy reunited with his, not, his wife. She lived off the narcotic, went home and came back to the evening big group. They become the subject of big group and her toxic twisting of his arm to do more burglaries was resolved. But Neville recognised that he was in a kinesthetic double bind that meant he couldn't use words. As soon as he mentioned his wife, his toxic wife as the source of his criminality, he knew he would lose her as a lover. He was addicted to toxicity. So he knew he couldn't speak, but he had to use words. So he used symbolic words and said, can anyone hear my language? And Neville says, I hear you, mate. I hear you. And when that toxic woman was spitting her venom at him, Neville said to me, I never loved, I never loved a woman more than I loved that woman at that moment. Because, love, you're talking your truth to me now. You've been absolutely truthful when you're saying you're going to cut my fucking balls off. Lovely, lovely, lovely. You've been totally honest. Wonderful. Yeah. Um, Liz, it's emotional intimacy, isn't it? You know, absolutely. It's emotional intimacy. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. An honest emotional expression. Requires yeah. a deep vulnerability on their part as well. Oh, absolutely. And on Neville. Neville used to knock himself round to glory B. He had pretty good survival skills in pulling himself back together again. <clears throat> I'm still working on that. <clears throat> I'd, I'd love to hear you riff on that more aspicere around these energy skills because I feel that's very much your wheelhouse, both in your profession but also just in who you are. And I, I think, Les, what was really coming through for me there is one, just how complex and layered communication really is. Like it's happening everywhere all the time through different energy centers to different degrees of opaqueness and transparency and subtlety and all of that. And then also like the 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 way in which like groups can self-regulate like this co-regulation that occurs in the relational field where there's something seems like there's something in the unconscious that knows what it needs and if there's someone there to receive that communication then that process can begin to unfold but yeah please ask us here i'd love to hear oh thanks tom um, that was a very generous piece of feedback you gave me. I, I appreciate that. Um, yeah, well, so more and more, I guess I don't want to turn it into a talk about my therapy style, but more and more, um, and I was I was actually talking to Daniel about something similar recently, uh, more and more I am seeing uh, 
the deep healing power in the work I do is really around emotional intimacy, you know, how and trying to trying to maneuver through or around the the many defensive structures that we all erect in order to um, avoid true emotional intimacy with one another. Um, and, you know, so many of those are um, unconscious in nature. So there's obviously a whole process to this, but, you know, to really boil it down to basics, um, it's the development of an emotionally intimate relationship. That is what's happening in the therapy room. And it can take a very long time. Um, but for many people, for most people, I think it might be their first experience of a genuine emotional intimacy with another person. Um which allows them to to share, but then in doing so to to more fully experience themselves, more consciously experience themselves, the the honesty of their emotional reaction, if we call it that, in that moment, um, which can sound so incredibly simple and basic, but um, we are so defended against for all sorts of developmental attachment based socialized reasons. Um, and to to put words to that experience and share it with another person, especially if you're working in the transference, especially if you're working with, you know, how do you feel towards me, right? If I'm asking them to reflect on what they're feeling towards me, um, can be um, one of the most confronting moves that a person can make because they may have never ever done that before in in um, within a relationship to to express that they might have an impulse inside them to reach out and snap my neck and because I'm I'm inviting them to get close to me and a part of them wants that and a part of them does not want that because that's never safe and um and to be able to express that to someone um in a and 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 hopefully experience that that can be okay that that doesn't have to damage the relationship um that that can be seen as a beautiful, vulnerable move to let me know that that's part of what you're experiencing towards me right now. It's very different to saying, I am now going to reach over and snap your neck, um, right? Uh, but it's, 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 um, it's allowing one, because in that, in that move, they are allowing themselves to notice the truth of what is happening at a particular level of their experience I mean I'm putting words in a way that may not be that helpful but um because this is, comes down to to what I guess I was talking to you about the other day Daniel is from my perspective there is this um I mean I make the delineation between emotions and thinking which is really a bit of a false distinction but it, but there is some there is some um there is some more basic kind of primal non-verbal experience right, that happens, which I'm going to call emotions, um, which in my mind, in my experience, we don't choose, we can't choose. They they come up in us, or we, right, um, they're more bottom up than top down. And, and so because we cannot choose them, it can be an incredibly vulnerable move to be as honest as possible in sharing what we notice about them to another person, because people confuse that with what that means about you as a person. Right. Whereas if we don't really have choice and they're just sort of coming up, it's 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 very different to talking about action. It's just talking about a, a feeling state and an impulse, an action impulse that comes with that, which is what an emotion is, comes with an action impulse. Um, 
and to really allow oneself to notice that inside and to share it towards the other person um, can be incredibly anxiety provoking. They might not even realize it's there. It takes a lot of work to help them realize it's there. But this is what I mean by emotional intimacy. Um, really, how close when I'm in that chair, it's how close will this person let me get to them, right? Um, and can can we work out a way um, where we might be able to get closer as long as the other person, though you have to set the conditions, as long as the other person signs up to that understanding that they think that that's going to be useful and reduce their suffering, right? They have to understand those links. Um, but in doing so, Tom, I've just, the the reduction in anxiety, just unnecessary anxiety in people's life when they are just in relationship with another person and all this anxiety that washes over them and they don't know why and all they're aware of is that they feel anxious all the time. So much of that just dissipates once people can get down to the brass tacks of their emotional experience in relationship with another person. Um, and they might not like what they see. They might be confronted by, by parts of the emotional experience they find. Um, but there is something liberating about being able to do that and to share it with another person, hopefully in a therapeutic context where there's that corrective emotional experience. They come to see, I can have this. It doesn't have to destroy a relationship. It might actually facilitate my sense of connectedness actually I now might feel more connected as a result more seen um, and all the sort of wordless stuff that comes with that in terms of the wonder and um and and in doing so often in the therapy room and making that move they can come to see wow all my anxiety has gone away like in that moment right I can notice I can notice these feelings towards you but all that anxious energy is gone now and it's much clearer. And then you have much clearer access to the emotional component. And, and, and then you have a, because the anxiety is gone, all the depression or whatever, all the, all the hyper rational defense mechanisms or whatever it is, that's interfering, right? Um, because all that's gone, you have clearer access to some different, like the way I think about it is different pots of information with which you might now decide what you're going to do with your actions. What am I going to do now in terms of this relationship or responding to this person? Um, it, it's just, it's clearer. People feel much clearer. And then the question is, because people often come into therapy with the question of what am I supposed to do in these situations? Here's some situations I have with people and I never know what to do. And I go round and round in my head. Um, but once we do this kind of work, they don't need help to know what to do in situations anymore. Because all the cloudy, fuzzy, defensive stuff is gone. And then it, they themselves are now able to, they don't need help. That It's clearer to them what they're going to do. It's actually what they're really saying, I think, is help me clear away all this noise so that I can really understand what is happening inside me. And once I do that, I might not know it yet, but once I do that, I have the power already inside me to, to, to make a decision about how I might act here. That's, I mean, these are all generalities. There's obviously different, different kinds of um different kinds of presentations. But overall, that is that is what I mean when I talk about emotional intimacy. It's um I think the 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 most vulnerable move is to let another person know as honestly as possible what you are experiencing emotionally in that moment, whether it be towards that person or just in your reflection on some argument you had with your partner yesterday or your mother when you were a child or whatever it is. They usually all connect together anyway. But um, 
it sounds so simple and so ridiculous and reductive, but it's actually one of one of the most difficult things I think for us to do in our current day, probably ever. I don't know um, because of all sorts of social reasons, but it's very very hard to do. And so that's what I mean by emotional intimacy. Um, and I and I, and to actually bring that back to voice craft. Um, I think that's part of what is so beautiful about this context is um, this, I think the space matters, like allowing each other so much space to just sort of play with a thought, to sit in silence, that that's all normal and part of the process, um, that we might have a loose structure of where we want to go, but it's okay if we don't, something else might happen. Um, and I, And at least my experience I might guess it's been yours as well, is that through doing that, I feel much more connected to all of you, right? I feel that feels much more emotionally intimate than a situation where we're going to be very hyper-rational and who can beat who with their logic. And yeah, so I could go on, I could go on for hours, Tom. Is that, does that help to illuminate some yeah, of what that, you were Yeah, that was for? wonderful okay. and very cool. clear. And I feel like it just really holds up the, what Daniel was pointing at as the energetic skill in a sense. And I, just to kind of riff on that briefly and more from an intuitive place, but just appreciating like that journey where we have this kind of social order that we get conditioned inside of, and then bad things happen to us that aren't meant to be part of that social order. And then we're immediately trapped inside of that because we have no way of expressing it because we're almost certain it's going to be rejected. But the moment that we choose to shut down and protect against that is the moment where we start actually becoming dissociated from the whole and from society. And so in that processing, as you were saying, just like cleaning it all up, and I think that's why they call shadow work cleaning up, we can then allow that more like natural, coming back to this idea of the way nature has its own coherence, to flow back through us and couple us to each other and to the environment. So like the energetic skill and the process of healing is just massive and maybe another thing to explore at some point, or maybe someone wants to pick it up now, but is just all the ways that that healing process can pathologize and be weaponized. Cause it, it feels like what we're prescribing is like mass healing. And by we, I mean like everyone who's kind of taking what needs to happen with the world seriously. But then there's also the like utmost delicacy, integrity, sensitivity required in order to engage in that process. And that, yeah, like it, it feels like what we are defend, protecting against still is like when someone stands up and claims to have a healing process, how do we know that they actually do? And that they're not just seeking to create something that serves themselves or to create little versions of themselves or, you know, all these different ways that that pathologizes. So, and I'd love to hear from you, Zach, as well. Be good to pull your voice back in. And I'm noticing we're getting closer to our landing point. So say what, it, yeah, go where you want, Zach, one, and then one we thing can really start quickly. coming back around. Yeah, can I just, just throw in one comment yeah. there about something you were saying about the, um, 
how can you tell if someone's really healed versus they're saying, wow, everything's so much better now, you know, to for compliance sake. You know, that happens all the time in therapy. You can see the person come in and they're incredibly anxious and they spend the whole session trying to convince you that they're much better now and they don't need you anymore. Because what they're really trying to say is this is horrific and I don't want to do it anymore. Like, But they think they need to convince me that they're allowed to go, right? Um Anyway, uh, so, so one thing I will, one note I will make on that, and again, generalities, right? It's very hard for me to talk about therapy because truly to do it well, um, it's always completely different because every person's completely different. So this is like just very high level. Um, there is some, there is something that happens when um, this process goes particularly well in my estimation that just it's like they call it character logical change as opposed to symptom relief like it just opens a person up there is this momentum that gets un unleashed there is that and and this person now is it's sort of like just self never like they're able to self navigate in a way they couldn't before and it's just i don't know they it opens them up and you do see this sort of rapid shift in well there is a rapid shift in their presentation their ability to drive the session the way they turn up and it's um but also just it frees up, they start to action things, they start to live. I mean, that can look all different ways depending on the person, but they just start to confidently action things and live and start to just things that they always thought there were so many barriers in the way I can never do that. They're just naturally doing that now. It, you do, there is, there is a quality to seeing someone open up in a manner with this sort of momentum that in my mind is very different. In my mind is is what I would suggest goes hand in hand with when someone says, I feel better, I feel like this has worked, whatever that means for them. You, there is a change. There is a change that I can see as well in a person. And it is to do with an, like an opening up and a, an agency, like just taking agency of their life um, and a freeing up and a momentum shift and um relationally they're different they're no longer in this very subservient position to you um or up, trying to be up here it's just there's a real relationship you feel the real relationship so i'll say that so yeah i'm really enjoying what you guys are saying and uh it seems like yeah, it, it does seem like you're describe what you're describing is is in keeping with what I meant at the beginning with elevating conflict. That uh, this kind of, like I'm I'm reflecting on this weaving metaphor that Les made and the the tendency of I forget the name of the the tribe you mentioned, but um, sorry, Yomu, Yomu, yeah. Y'all knew. Uh, the tendency of the y'all knew tribe to uh, view difference as an opportunity to uh, to change rather than as a uh, as the need to to stand firm and and uh, repel whatever difference is coming for them. Um, they, were, they were noticing. They were noticing felt difference. They were saying, we feel different. They're coming. Do you feel it? So they were actually, it wasn't something they were deciding to do. It was a difference that emerged from within. Sure. I do wonder, I do wonder what the limits of that are, 
right? Because like, presume, you know, I don't know anything about this tribe, but presumably they did go to war. Um, you know, I assume. And, and if not, then. Not with the sea gypsies. Never. Not with who? The sea gypsies coming across the sea. They never went to war with them. Sure. But like, I mean, did they go to war at all? There is, <clears throat> there seemed as if there was all sorts of processes at work that minimised that. Yes. And, and there was, that was culturally, uh, cultural taboo to go hurting each other. Sure. Um, I guess, I guess what I'm getting at here is that I'm, I'm trying to, like, okay, I recently listened to the conversation between uh, Jamie Wheel and Tim Adeline, and one of the things that Jamie brought up was the distinction between the pre-tragic and the post-tragic, right? That there is, there is a, a tendency to, when, when confronting tragedy, uh, when confronting trauma, to want to revert back to a state in which that trauma no longer plays a role in your life. Um, rather than the post-tragic, which is to say, okay, yes, everything has fallen apart. Like, yes, we're in the shit. What do we do from here? Um, and I guess I felt to, to, you know, to express my feelings here, I felt in your response, uh, a movement back to the pre-tragic. It seemed, it seemed to me, and again, this is, you know, I'm, I'm expressing my feelings more than like a logical coherent thing here, but it felt like, I was trying to presence the the reality of the trauma of our situation um, and the conflict therein, and to try and to try and create a path forward from there, right? Post tragic, um, and it felt like in your response, it was a movement to the pre tragic, in which we can all just weave everything together, and there's no need for conflict. Um, and so that's what I was left with emotionally in response to, to what you were saying. And that's why I'm asking like, what are the limits of that process? Because there are limits somewhere. And if there aren't, then I mean, you know, like maybe there should have been because the British came in and they were different and they, they destroyed that, that society, you know what I'm saying? Um, and so like, that's, that's what I'm interested in is like, what do we do when we reach the limits of the process, which can weave difference together? Cause not, I mean, your, your garment that you're wearing is red and yellow and black, but like, what if I'm a green thread, right? Like <laughs> it doesn't fit into that garment. And so, so now what, now we have two garments. And if those garments are coming into any kind of economic uh, context or any kind of political context, or even just a shared geographic space, those two garments are going to be competing. And, and so that, to me, that represents the limit. Like I, I recognize what you're saying and I, I believe in it. And yes, we should do everything we can to weave difference together where possible. But what do we do when that's not possible is the question that I'm, I'm most interested in. And so I don't know if that makes sense. I don't know, you know. Absolutely. That's what I have Absolutely. I've been in context where there has been uh, uh, repeated patterns of war up in Mindanao in southern Philippines. So I was going into a context where the next tragedy was just around the corner because the, the Muslim separatists, the Moro, were out in the swamps. Then there was the rice fields, then there was the road, 
then the rice fields on the other side, and then the swamps. Now, in that context, if you go in, uh, I can send a photograph from the air, and you can see where all the heavy bomb uh, craters are in the rice fields. Now, I went there <clears throat> uh, in between the, the war, but I went there under uh, military uh, with uh, 16 guys with AK-47s pointing out either side in front of us. And I was there, and they were just waiting for the next time for it to break out. I met with the Morrow. I met with the Imams. I met with, you know, my contribution there was uh, to introduce the notion of the energy communication that, that, uh, that Tom was talking about uh, and these micro skills that there is processes of engaging post-tragic. I had an example where I was getting prepared to do jail work and I was learning to work through the yards where the prisoners were. So I was going to see the social worker and I walked through and there was this little birdcage that they let you from one yard through a narrow entrance into a, like a bird aviary. They locked the door behind you and they opened the door on the other side. As I'm walking behind, these two guys hide me from view from the guy in the watch house. He puts his elbow, the guy that was hidden, into my heart in the most vicious fashion. Hurt like crazy. I stepped so that I could be seen. Then I immediately turned and did my meaning reframe. Because post-tragic was going to be another walkthrough the next day. Post-tragic. Next day I was going to get it. It was going to get worse and bloody worse. So I turned and said, hey, you two guys, brilliant work. Brilliant. A guy can't walk through here with his head in the clouds. What a wake-up call you've given me. I'd like to thank you. And then turned with them both with their jaws hanging down. The next day, I've got to confront it again. But the guy that hit me is back inside the building because he's going to have a contact visit with his girlfriend. I've got clothes on and he's totally naked as he steps out the shower. Now I go into the urinal. He said, oh, you. I said, yeah, there you go. And he said, oh, that was a, I'll use the vernacular, that was a kind of a thing I did yesterday. Uh, we were bored, I'm, I'm, I'm really sorry. And I said, well, uh, your um, apology accepted. But I meant what I said. That was brilliant work. So thank you. Uh, I'll be on the board from now on in. So he said, we'll run protection with you from now on. So that was minimising tragic because I could, they could have made my life hell. You're a clever bastard. You, you think you're a big hero. You come and talk to us or anything. But he took my definition of the situation. And uh, they're, they're, so these same micro skills, I had to establish how do I go into a jail and be able to move around with 60 guys that are all under extreme tension and are likely to explode and really hurt or kill at any moment. Neville, who was 
mentoring me and going to train the jail psychologist, said, get the governor to say that you want to talk to the most despised prisoner. Find out who he is. So he was the saddest that had mutilated a woman. So get the governor to take in the psychologist due into their lunch and then tell the governor to, to tell that guy to finish early, you want to meet him in his cell. I had nothing in my mind in preparation of what I was to say to that guy. So he goes and sits on his bed. He said, do you know who I am? I said, yeah. I can't tell you what I said because it's just too absolutely over-the-top offensive in the extreme. But I said, I believe you're the best ex in Australia. That was an outrageous thing to say. You're the best in Australia. Now, he knew the symbolic significance. I was doing symbolic talk. And he said, he completely, immediately, I didn't ask his permission to have emotional intimacy. He immediately started sobbing like crazy, sobbing and sobbing and sobbing. And when he composed himself, which was after about four or five minutes, he said, that is the nicest thing that anyone has ever said to me in my life. Because he realised that what I was saying, I am putting aside completely what you've done. I'm treating the horrendous, the thing that should never happen on earth, to one side, because I want to meet you. And he recognised that. He came out absolutely sobbing like crazy to, to fit in and actually finish his dessert. And I won the respect of every one of the 60. They said, whatever he did, we would like to be treated with the respect and love that that guy was shown. Because all we do is put human feces on his bed three times a week. That's all we do, or ship him because he showed me all the times he'd been stabbed. And there's a guy that is so related with him that he's absolutely sobbing tears of joy. Finish. Well, thank you so much, Liz. Post-tragic. Post His life was tragic. But there, when I, when I left my, my job down there, I got permission to go in and visit, visit the cooks. Uh, and I caused a complete collapse of all their prison protocols because that guy was in with the visitor centre and, and all of the cooks were in there and about 20 of the, the guys were in there and we had a community meeting with all of their, their, their wives and their girlfriends and the pedophiles who had their, their daughters that they had was the reason for the offence uh, and stopped bouncing on their laps so that they could meet our, our community meeting together. Uh, and all of the, 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 the deputy governor was there when I went in, and he allowed this community gathering of me with all of these guys, saying farewell to a lot of them. And the guys that had been the saddest introduced me to his, his girlfriend. That, that never happened. But those, the, the governor said, tell Les and you 
slow down on what you're doing because you're turning this into a holiday camp. You're supposed to be unpleasant. But I knew that he was being lit position because we were making their life easier for them. And we created a context where perhaps the first time in human history when you had all the drug offenders who hated all the child sex offenders because it was a special protection prison, we had a statement to a criminal uh, inquiry that was signed by every prisoner in that jail. And it was on should there be a cessation of compassionate leave. And we had a most brilliant statement on the wisdom of compassionate leave and five or six personal uh, amendments where they told their life story. I am a nobody from nowhere. And even though I can see the wisdom of this statement. And that went off with everyone's signature. And I, I secretly embedded my signature in amongst the 64 signatures. And that went off uh, to the judge. And the judge who was appointed to do the inquiry was the last guy that hung someone in Australia. So <clears throat> that was the extent that we created unity amongst these uh, 64 guys that were, were mainly under extreme, extreme protection. Now, most of them, to come back to you, a spaceship, most of them were disconnected from emotion. They they had what you were talking about, Tom, of uh, any attempted healing was potentially pathologizing because they had dissociated from emotion as a means of defense. They, had, uh, they also had uh, their, their Wernicke's area and speech motor production shut down. So they, they, they could not speak emotional language. So any attempt to get them to start being emotional again is going to be totally threatening to them. And any attempt to heal will pathologize. Now, this is one of the, the things, the big things that my work and Neville's work adds to any move beyond these protection and dissociated from emotion as a form of protection. How do you move through to starting to flow when, and sometimes this is best done with that absolutely instantaneously when I said, you're the best, uh, I nearly said it then, you're the best in Australia. And I'll finish with this. Often what's happened is like you've taken out one person and put in a totally different person. Like it's extraordinary, like virtually every psychodynamic aspect of them arrives whole. It's integrated. I had that with my wife, who before she committed suicide on St. Valentine's Day, so I'm just getting over the anniversary of my wife's suicide. And my son, who is facing, um, this is secret, I won't mention that. He's in major trauma at the moment. Now, What's happening with all of this associated with, with weaving this all together is my wife has been given um, 
a calm yourself down because you might worry. But the side effect is you go into absolute helpless, hopeless shutdown and suicidal depression. Now, that was uh, Sarah Pax. She'd run out. She suddenly stopped. So she's at the front door. She's got co-contraction. She's freezing, cold. She can't talk. She's stammering. She conveys that she's helpless and hopeless. There's nothing. Her life is finished. She wants to die. So I said, okay, let's go to the front door and run on the spot. So I literally carry her under her elbows to the front door. And I said, okay, look out. Now, liminal, you mentioned liminal space. The front door, looking from the dark into the light, is liminality. The lineman, there's the threshold, the, the doorstep. I take her from side to side, activate this side of the brain, activate this side, activate this side. Coconut. She doesn't know what's happening. I said, hey, on this side, lift that heel. This side, lift that heel. She's metaphorically running on the spot. I noticed because I'm, I'm holding her like this. I, I, she starts breathing. And then she said, ah, enough. I'm not part of this nonsense. And walks up. She goes, she, she, I've got things to do. And miracle upon miracle, like Scrooge, who suddenly says, we're all happy. At the end of Scrooge, Scrooge totally changes and no one draws to the attention that Screw doesn't have a fucking clue that he's changed. Margaret didn't notice that she suddenly became a totally different person. I, I'm looking around the corner in the kitchen and she starts again. I said, time to get to the front door. By the time she's there, she's helpless, hopeless and in a mess. Same thing. Done. Enough, enough of this nonsense. She's down the kitchen again. It took three times to the front door and she was totally normal for the rest of the day and she never, ever drew attention that she noticed that she was different. Mm. That's, that, so sometimes it's best done in a hurry. Agreed. 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 Yeah, and not to reduce all of that, Les, because there's just so much richness in in the stories that you just expressed, but I'm I'm really hearing this way in which we can cut through, and that often this process is something that can't be done explicitly or directly, which is maybe why it demands such a high skillfulness from people, but that there is a layer of truth or coherence that can be penetrated to and can, in a sense, reboot the system. And that, like, for me, in terms of just trying to understand how to relate to the world, how to relate to the people around me, this feels like extremely fertile soil. So thank you so much for everything you've shared today. It's been very profound for me. And I'm sure I speak for everyone in saying that. And I'm just seeing the time. So I think it would be good to land here. It'd be good to hear from you, Daniel, at least once more before we do close off the recording. But yeah, if anyone has any thoughts after Daniel speaks, then we'll land after that. But yeah, thank you guys. It's been exceptional.
I've enjoyed it immensely and I've enjoyed hearing everyone. Um, to speak very generally, um, in my opinion, uh, a lot of what Aspasi was talking about, Les Spencer, uh, that was being brought to attention are the skills that are necessary for the possibility of substantive democracy. They are the skills that are necessary for the possibility of global pluralism. We attempted a global order skipping these skills using the markets and neoliberalism following Francis Fukuyama, and it did not work. Uh, it does work in some ways, but it doesn't deal with everything. And so like James Hunter, Peter Berger, all of them talked about how um, we dealt with the problem of difference by creating a notion of multiculturalism, which basically suggested um, difference is holidays, clothing, food, and stuff like that. And they're like, no, difference is a lot deeper, and we haven't dealt with it. And because we haven't dealt with it, there's something being repressed that could come back. We The skills that are being discussed, like when we look at... Um, how Tocqueville talks about democracy, we've talked about this before, democracy is not merely voting system. It's the ability to talk about first principles, ideas, emotions, and all of these different things. And it, there's a difference between the, the democracy of what Karatani calls Iona and the democracy of Athens. The democracy of Athens becomes basically the majority rules. We have a voting process and the majority rules, where the democracy of Iona is the exchange of differences and emotional processing that is able to talk about difference without exploding into conflict. Um, where we only have the ability to do democracy as Athens, then it's majority rule. And we always have to remember that for the Greeks, democracy is actually a slur term. It means demos, that it's controlled by, it's a kind of tyranny. And what has happened is because we're not able to do substantive democracy, which would require these micro skills or these energy skills of these different ways, then we're only able to do democracy as majority rules, which means whoever runs the White House runs the country. Their worldview is then put upon everyone else. There is a repression. There's an uprising conflict, right? So you have to be able to do the democracy of an Iona, but that requires different skills that we haven't thought of. Um, and that would require being able to deal with these sort of wounds and processing and, and so on and so forth. One of the ways people have found, quote unquote, healing when they lack these skills is to go to uh, conspiracies, uh, to go to fascism, to go to ideology. All of these things promise a kind of healing or to go to narratives that make you feel better. And you see a lot of people online that are basically providing healing in that form, right? And I like to think that one of the things that kind of the liminal web at its at, at a... Um, a good form, one of the services, dare I say, that it provides is an awareness of these energy skills, the teaching of what they might be, and their primacy as necessary for the possibility of global um, global pluralism. Now, to Mr. Fishman's point, which I think gets into foreign policy and different things like that, generally, there were strategies, you could say, of like the question of where, say, under Obama versus, say, Trump on how to relate to, say, Syria. And there's a strategy of containment, and there's a strategy of engagement. Engagement is where we say, well, let's interact with them because we're not going to say that they're evil because that just requires a negative response and it's going to make things worse. But then, of course, with Obama, if you do engagement, you risk making them richer. So if they ever turn on you, it becomes a worse conflict. So you're like, well, we ought to contain them. But then if you do that, they get angry at you and you get a worse response. So a lot of the debate, I think, like what Mr. Spencer is describing about these different sort of strategies by which to deal with difference in the world of foreign policy can be seen as a debate between, say, engagement and containment and which is better, which is worse and so on and so forth. Now, because I know we're coming at the end, this is a, is a big debate, but when you go through 
the history of reading biographies of all the different foreign affairs, whether it be Huntington, whether it be Kissinger or different things, it's always extraordinary how they would say that the number one key to foreign relations to keep nations from going to war is, um, I think of Kissinger, and I know he's a controversial figure, but I do recall where he would say, before he went and talked in Mao, he read all of the great books in China, the Red Marsh, the Three Kingdoms. He would study the philosophy because he wanted to understand their world. And he said, you know, when I was sitting there talking with Mao, you would have thought it was two old college professors having debates about things of the world. And what he was trying to do is have the energies, if you will, between the West and the East, but be creative as opposed to conflicting. Because I think what you're asking, I think also because now I'm talking too much as we come on the end. Um, I think basically what we see, Mr. Fishman, is in the same way in America, we'll talk about the um, separation of powers, where you have the federal, the judiciary, and the executive. And there's this idea that you have these different powers and they have to relate in different things. I think what has happened is we we, we have not had um, separations of modes of engagement or modes of energy. We've had one, markets, commerce, by which it's going to do everything from between nations all the way down to the common life of people in their community, when there are actually different kinds of en engagement and different kinds of energy skills based on different situations and different modes. But we've had a we've had basically a single tool by which we tried to do everything that has allowed uh, relations that are more on terms of commerce or neoliberalism, which has proven beneficial, but it has also left some things unaddressed and when the energy of neoliberalism, when the when neoliberalism has not been able to prove adequate for the energy skills needed to avoid diversity leading to conflict, it hasn't had any other tools. So I think um, what I would say is it would seem as if there needs to be the human beings at this point in the game need to have the ability to recognize different situations that bring with them different modes of engagement and separation, like a separation of power, separations of these modes relative to different situations that they can identify. I know that is all very vague and would have to be expounded on, but what you're seeing here is something about a discernment of situations that require different skills based on what you're dealing with. And if we don't even realize that that's something we need to do, we can't even begin to work through what that may, may lead to. But I do think there are questions of foreign policy, government policy. I think basically what we've done, we've tried to do, the reason globalization the reason globalism has basically been very problematic in the way you're describing, Mr. Fishman, is because we've tried to make the commonality of all diverse people law and commerce, law and economics, and that would be the grounds of relation. That can do a lot, but it's reductionistic, too, and because law is not culture, that was the dream of Fukuyama, is that law and, law and culture were basically interchangeable, and that economics and relation was enough that if we were able to provide services and goods, that would provide enough common ground for difference to express itself to one another through that consumer culture to scratch the itch of difference and that that would be enough for people to feel heard. This was a false premise. This is not true. Now, that doesn't mean it was completely foolish, but it left things that have not been addressed that now we find ourselves having to think. And I think it has a lot to do with the question of what is substantive democracy? What are the micro skills that make that possible? And in what circumstance do you apply these in different ways? So I think that's kind of the, the open core. But I think I think there's a lot to be said on that problem that is being described. People need to this is related, but people need to be able to to notice and tolerate within within themselves complex mixed feelings towards difference, right? This is and and so it starts at the individual, but then I'm, you can extrapolate this out, right? The pro, so much of the problem I see here is that people are splitting, right? So it's I, I either 
I either feel angry and don't like it, or I'm going to spin it as positive and good. It, it's probably both. And you need to have the skills to be able to first discern within yourself that you can have both things happening at once. You can have both feelings at once. Um, and this comes back to, you know, just relationships between two people, you know, within a, a, a relationship where I can notice love and positive feelings and gratitude towards someone. At the same time, I can notice a rage inside me that might like to hurt them. Right. Like I can notice both, hold both without it needing to, um, I guess, define my self-worth, define my um, value in this relationship, define my actions necessarily. But but so, so, so I, I harp on about this because if we go back down to the individual level, the, the anxiety sits on top of the complex mixed feelings as a way to distract you from the mixed nature of the feelings. It's it's a mask, right? And so that so your your ability to notice and tolerate complex mixed feelings relates to how much additional anxiety you then experience when it gets brought to your attention. So if there is difference coming at you, your ability to look inside and notice the part of you that's okay with it or might like it, and the part of you that that absolutely um, abhors it, you know, like your ability to do that matters because otherwise you'll just notice anxiety. Um, or you'll notice a whole lot of defensive structures that come online that are regressive in nature that make you split. And now I only notice that I really like it, or I only notice that um, it enrages me. And it has to be one or the other. And this is part of that narrowing, flattening process and, and it's an oversimplification of experience. Um, and this is happening, you know, in these large groups of people and social media, you know, propagates some of this and people are getting caught up in this splitting process. It's complex when difference, when, when you are presented with difference, there will be a complex internal emotional reaction to that um, as an individual. And then obviously, um, you know, as a, as a whatever, as a group, as a, as a nation, whatever, however you want to look at it. Um, and so you need to approach it in that manner, that this is, that it's not, it's not going to be simple. And I think stepping into that frame of how can I be, like some level of being open to what's really happening here, approaching, attempting an engagement of some kind, trying to to wrestle with it as something that is um, complicated um, rather than uh, splitting and, you know, monsterizing the other and, and all the, you know, and projection and all these other things that go on. Very tangled up there. I, I need some time to draw all that apart, really. But um, I wanted to share that as well because this, as everyone talks, I just I just go back to, I guess, the model that I work with when I have one other person in front of me, this internal emotional conflict that's going on inside them, how that it's usually happening unconsciously, how that then uh, leads to all these defensive processes that they experience. They experience the defensive processes consciously. They don't experience the internal emotional conflict consciously. And then the defensive structures are usually the thing that then leads to their suffering in their day-to-day -day life, their disconnection, their alienation, their loneliness, their um, drug and alcohol, like, like whatever it is, right? Um, and so in order to sort of help up here, we have to go all the way down into that and help help them to start to see the complexity inside themselves and that they can tolerate and hold it, but it may not necessarily lead to destruction of relationships. It might improve connection. It might improve their ability to have agency and confidence in their movement in the world and all these things.
I'll shut up now. I, I would just say very quickly that I, that, um, as a very giant claim that I can't substantiate in this time, is that my impression is that many of the greatest diplomats, leaders, coaches in human history have a sense of everything that was just said, and they bring that to the table. And you could say that a lot of the crisis of leadership that people talk about in institutions today is a loss of that sense. Maybe they couldn't articulate it as well as Les and Esther said, let in these kind of microscopes, but this this kind of sense of that mattering. And also, if you read a book in sociology like Randall Collins intellectual, you have this sense where the greatest thinkers and creators and artists had some sort of sense of the need to relate with difference and different kinds of people and regulate themselves and have a sense of these. So, and and so you could say, so to close like this kind of doomer, we're all going to die feeling that you see online uh, that I think we shouldn't give into, but there's also a severity to it and gravity we should take seriously. I do think it is possible for people, if these are the kind of awarenesses and then there are various implementations that are needed. I do think it's possible for people to learn them. I do think it is possible for them to be incubated and to move into positions of leadership and so on and so forth. So there's on those grounds reasons of hope. But this is the difference. If we're talking about scaling a system or worldview that will enlighten everyone, I think we're doomed. Uh, but if we're talking about the spreading of energy skills, that's possible. So there's a difference between a kind of scaling of some sort of whatever and spreading various energy skills with an awareness of the, you know, you could talk about international realism and different various problems that Mr. Fishman is bringing up, but those like the spreading of those energy skills, I think is possible. Whereas the scaling of some sort of system that's going to fix everything is naive to be very general. Now I would have to substantiate all that, but I think um, that that would be something I would say. I'll just make a final comment that there'll be Seeing this is being recorded, there'll be other than us five that may be looking at this. And some of the things that I've been talking about can be just uh, can just occur in the space of uh, buying an ice cream over the counter. And you'll have the person saying, well, that was really wonderful. Like I was talking uh, in a bank while I was waiting for photocopying, and when we'd finished talking, Dawn said, okay, well, bank to, back to bank world. Uh, so it is possible to do these things very lightly on the run to, for it to be delightful and whimsical. And also, if you attempt to take on the healer role too early, and let's say that, you're, that you mimic something or adapted something and you change a person to being standing in their own space, and they've got a lesbian lover that detests the change that you've made in them, you might find yourself uh, suffering uh, in the hands of the criminal justice system from false allegations. We're living in a potentially very, very dangerous world for people that are healers and transformative people because we've got people out there that are really quite prepared in Australia here the uh, the presumption of innocence is going out the window. Um, beyond reasonable doubt is going out under the window. So you've got to be very, very, very using, as my mother would say, the wisdom of a sound mind on how you use these skills. Yeah, that feels like a really important note to end on, Liz. So thank you for bringing that in for the listeners. And Zach, just any, I'll let you have the final, final word here. Any closing remarks? And then I'll turn off the recording. 
I don't know that I have anything to add. I think Les Les brought it to a a good conclusion, and I feel like anything I would say here would just detract from it. So I think I'll just leave it there. Uh, thank you all for the conversation. It's been really great. Awesome. Well, it's good to hear your voice again before we land. Yeah, thank you guys so much. This has been um, awesome, very interesting, lots to digest. So yeah, I'm very grateful as always. It's great to be here with you all.